Hey, good morning, Christchurch. Um, it's good to be together with you this morning. Uh, these are certainly strange times that we continue to navigate our way through. Um, there are certain parts that I enjoy about them. I, I enjoy sort of coming around the table and opening God's Word with you. There's a intimacy here, even though we're through a screen, uh, that I hope that you are appreciating to some degree as well. There are other things that I've been appreciating. Uh, one is just Sunday observance. It's been a very different experience. It's Thursday today that I am coming to you and preaching. Sundays have traditionally, for me in the ministry, been very busy, get up early, uh, study, saturate, soak in the Word, uh, come preach, teach maybe Sunday school, have other programs, activities that go on. Sundays are, are not a, a day of rest, uh, but these days have been. We've been able to get up later, uh, have a, a nice breakfast together with the family, uh, sit down for a, a 1043 service or something like that. Uh, and, and then after we're done, we've had a discussion, we, we go out and, and we've been exploring different parts of our West Michigan area, walking different trails. We've been on the Northwest and Northeast. We've been down to Saugatuck. We've been in Yankee Springs. Last week we were on a trail and it was interesting. We, we thought we were going in one direction. We thought we were going around this lake. Uh, and, and it started out that way. We were following the contour of the lake, but then all of a sudden the trail changed and it started going away from the lake. And we were clearly on the trail, so we, we felt some confidence in continuing to follow it, but we were confused as well as to what was going on. I think that's kind of a good picture for what we find here. Here we meet Elijah following this, this wonderful confrontation that we saw in Mount Carmel last week where he calls down the fire of God and it shows up and uh, the rain comes back and Elijah uh, in power has seen God shown up and he thinks that God is working out his plan in a specific way. But then he goes back to Jezreel and I think he expected you know, the people to show up, the repentance that he saw in Mount Carmel to continue continue forward, Jezebel to be overthrown, uh, the Asherah poles to come down along with Baal worship. But that doesn't happen. In fact, Jezebel says, I'm going to kill you, just like you killed those prophets of Baal. If your life is not mine by tomorrow, uh, may the gods do so to me. And, and Elijah faces this, and, and all of a sudden, the trail turns. He, he thought he was going this way. But now it's going this way, and he's not sure that he is still the guy uh, for the job. He's not sure that God is still leading. And so he goes from Jezreel in the north down to the very southernmost tip of Judah, out of Israel. Remember, the, they're divided. Israel are the northern tribes. Judah is the southern tribes. He goes to the southernmost tip of Judah. And there he dismisses his servants, says, I'm, I'm done with the ministry. Uh, and then he goes another day's journey into the wilderness uh, and sits down underneath this broom tree, and, and God comes and meets with him there. What can we learn from sort of the zag in, in Elijah's life? Uh, he, he thought we were zigging. 
but there was this zag and and we see a broken man come forward well i want to take us on a path that touches on four things the purview who who is this about the problem what's really going on here the promise that god comes and brings into elijah's life and then finally the prescription that we have for our own life the purview is um, this is happening to Elijah. And one of the things that we have to recognize with prophets is like priests and like kings, they stand between God and the people. Jesus, you remember, is the ultimate mediator standing between uh, God and his people. He is uh, carrying all three offices, prophet, priest, and king. But prophets did this. And we see in this passage, even in sort of the journey of 40 days that we see in verse 8, that uh, Elijah is meant to represent, to picture the people of Israel, the people of God, people of all uh, stripes and, and shapes and sizes and colors that will find themselves following Jesus. And so when we see the brokenness of Elijah, we can readily identify with that. But there's another sense, and I just want to touch on this very quickly, in which Elijah is uniquely set aside for a specific role. And we realize that as someone who is uniquely set aside for a specific role, he too experiences brokenness. Sometimes we forget that. We forget that particularly with pastors and, and other church leaders, uh, whether they be elders or directors of music or children's leaders or whoever it is. And, and we think that they are somehow above discouragement or above feeling the brokenness of life or they're above making mistakes even if you see Elijah doing that here. Um, one of the things that this reminds us is that our leaders are a lot like us, and it encourages us to treat them with grace, to pray for them. Political leaders, incidentally, too, uh, later on in this passage, verse 15 and 16, you're, you're going to see that, that God is going to uh, put into place political leaders, both pagan and uh, Jerusalem or Israelite leaders. And, and both of these need our prayers. Uh, they don't need our opposition. They don't need our ad hominem arguments against them. They need our prayers because they're placed there by God. And we see that testimony in the New Testament. It's amazing to me actually how little uh, the New Testament talks about the political situation that is going on during that time, though it was intense and though it was extreme. The focus is always on the kingdom of God and how we are to act as Christians, as believers. And what it tells us as Christians and believers is that we are to pray for and obey the government that God has put in place over us. And some of those, as you know, were very, very pagan people, people like Nero who were killing the church. And yet God is saying, um, remember, I am working here. We're certainly going to see that as we go throughout this passage. So what's the problem here? I've already somewhat alluded to it. Elijah was expecting the journey to go this way, but it's zagged and it's gone this way. And Elijah isn't sure that he is the right man for the job. A lot of people have wanted to project feelings into this passage and see Elijah as somewhat psychotic, or uh, one writer even says 
Elijah exhibits symptoms of manic depression, wishing for death together with the loss of appetite and inability to manage with excessive self-pity. I think that's going a bit too far in this text. I think what we see here is not so much that Elijah is throwing a pity party and that he's self-focused, but rather that Elijah had expected in his zealousy for the program that Yahweh had called him to react, of t- uh, uh, inact, of tearing down Baal worship, uh, and that he had exhibited both in his calling down the fire and, you remember, slaughtering the prophets, uh, that in his zealousy for that, he can't understand what happens now that Jezebel is still opposing him. He had expected the people to rise up. He had expected that the powerful action of God would be enough to win the day. He didn't expect that there would be this following action now that happens. And so therefore, as I've already said, uh, he wants to give up the ministry. He, He goes out of the territory that God has called him to. He dismisses his staff. And he lays down and and he says, um, uh, it is enough. Uh, I've I've done all that I can. Take my life for I wasn't able to do this any better than my father's. I don't think he's suicidal here. Uh, He doesn't presume to have the right to take his own life. But he basically is saying, Lord, I, I resign. I resign from this call that you have put on my life. But as we're going to see, God doesn't allow him to resign. But how do we understand this problem? What we see here is Elijah is basically succumbing to his own limitations. He can't see beyond what he is experiencing at the moment. Jezebel is opposing him. Well, this can't work. But he doesn't see Hatziel. He doesn't see Jehu. He doesn't see Elisha. He doesn't see the 7,000. He's not seeing the things that God is seeing, but his own succumbing to the limitations are the things then that are, are causing him to want to turn in his card. And, and this is exactly the way that we get. I, I experienced this in ministering in a pandemic. I have been so accustomed to doing church, going about ministry in a certain way that allows me to get out and to interact with people, that allows us to gather and to preach and to proclaim. And now all of a sudden I can't do those things. And I say, God, what are you doing? How can I minister in this time? But I am looking at my limitations rather than thinking about ways that I can't see that God may be using this exact moment to spread his church. I mean, think about the diaspora in the first century where, where God was persecuting. Uh, God threw uh, through pagans, through people that were opposed to Christ, was persecuting the church and spreading them all over. And they're like, how is this helping us? How is this, how is this causing, you know, help, helping the cause of Christ to grow? But it was bringing people here and here and here, and the church spread in a way it never would have spread if that persecution hadn't come. Or how about with our kids? You know, we're, we're accustomed to raising our kids in a certain way and uh, being faithful in this way and this way. And then all of a sudden, we have to let them go. 
they head off like our daughter Gabriella did into the the National Guard and she's at basic training and I can't even talk to her. And I have to trust that God has ways that he has people in significant places that he is going to bring into her life when I am limited. Uh, what we struggle with, and I think what uh, Elijah is broken about here, speaks more to his own succumbing to his limitation than to what God is actually doing. Because what we see here as God meets Elijah is the promise that he has not lost control of the situation and that he has these things in his hand we see it in, in, in such tender ways. I mean, look at the provision that we see in verses 4 to 8 that God brings into Elijah's life. Uh, this angel of the Lord who is oftentimes a pre-incarnate uh, version of Jesus actually comes and he, he touches Elijah. He feeds Elijah. He allows him a rest. Uh, he informs him of the journey that he is going to take. When Elijah journeys to Horeb, God asks him a question. Uh, he doesn't ask him a question because he doesn't know what Elijah's doing here. He doesn't ask him the question, I believe, as, as a rebuke. But when God asks us questions, he asks the questions for us. He's, it's his way to listen. What are you doing here, Elijah? Like, what is your purpose? What are, what are you doing here at this mountain where I established the covenant? How does that call into mind the commission that you have? God pursues Elijah in such tender holistic ways. He doesn't just give him a sermon. He doesn't just, you know, read him the riot act. He feeds him a meal. He touches him. He asks him questions. He listens. It's such a beautiful picture of the way that God deals with his people. And maybe you've experienced that very same thing. Uh, oftentimes, you know, through God immediately, other times through God and his people immediately, uh, a meal that is brought at just the right time, uh, somebody to come and sort of sit in your mud puddle with you and to empathize with you, uh, to listen to you. Uh, these are the ways that we see the tenderness of God even when we find ourselves broken down, succumbing to our own limitations. But then there is this, this next part, and we see this in verses 9 to 18, where God takes him to Horeb. Notice that this isn't Elijah now still running. He, he sets him on this journey. Uh, verses 7 and 8, and he brings him to Horeb or Sinai, which was the mountain of God, the place where he established the covenant between himself and his people. And he brings Elijah to a cave, or the word there is cleft. It, it certainly calls into mind Exodus 32, 33, and then especially 34. The similarities between Elijah and Moses are so strong. 
Uh, we mentioned them last time when, you know, in Moses' day, fire would come out to signify God's presence. We saw it on the mountain. We saw it at the tabernacle. Um, we saw the justice of God when the people were apostate and Elijah slaughtering the prophets of Baal, but then the Levites in Exodus 33 uh, walking through the camp and killing those who have apostatized against the Lord. And then for both Elijah and for Moses, after these intense, intense moments of God executing his justice, they are brought and given a vision of God. Remember in Exodus 34, we have that significant scene where Moses is hidden in the cleft of a rock by God's hand and he passes by and Moses is allowed to see his backside and the Lord passes by and gives him his name, the Lord, the Lord, the great, the merciful God. You know, here Elijah is hidden again in a cleft of a rock and he's allowed to see God. And, and, and what we recognize here for both of them is that God is saying, I am enough. I, I am enough. You are experiencing in your limited capacity the intensities of what it means to follow me. And you're questioning your call. You're questioning your abilities. But I am enough. And I want you to see that. And specifically for Elijah, it's interesting because he comes in the fire and he comes in the whirlwind and he comes in the earthquake uh, and he's not in those things. Uh, now, that is not to say that God is never in the fire, the whirlwind, or the earthquake. We know he is. He just showed that in 1 Kings 18 at Carmel. God is in those things. To Job, he comes in the whirlwind and he reveals himself. At Mount Sinai earlier with the Israelites, he reveals himself in the earthquake and the lightnings and the fire. Jesus' death, he reveals himself in the earthquake that accompanies uh, Jesus' death on the cross. So the the Lord uses those things. But what he is saying to Elijah here as he comes with this uh, low whisper, or as older translations put it, the still small voice, this murmur, is that he not only works in those things. They maybe were accustomed to seeing those or expected to see God in the earthquake, the, the whirlwind, and the fire but he also works in the silent ways, in the unexpected ways, in the murmurs. And this is what Elijah is being reminded of. You expected me in the fire, and I showed up, but I want you to see that my plan is much bigger than this. And he goes on, and one of the reasons why I think we see that Elijah is not just throwing a pity party here is that the Lord actually affirms his prophetic zeal. God, Elijah comes to the place where the covenant was actually made between God and his people, and he brings, as it were, a covenant lawsuit against the people. This was what prophets were all about. The people of Israel have forsaken your covenant. They've thrown down your altars. They've killed your prophets with your sword, and they seek to take my life. He says this twice in verse 10 and verse 14. And in verse 15, God says, you're right, but I'm not done. 
You thought it was just going to be the fire on the Mount Carmel, but I have a plan, and that plan includes Hatzael, and that plan includes Jehu, and that plan includes Elijah, and that plan includes 7,000 people who you have no idea about, but who have not bowed the knee to Baal. I work not only in the fire, but I also work in the whisper. And, and the whisper is really unexpected because Hatzael, there's no evidence biblically that he ever became a Yahweh follower or a Jesus worshiper. Which again is a reminder for us that God's ways are not our ways. And I think we really struggle with this in America. We are so accustomed to this idea that we are a Christian nation, which, uh, you know, there are certainly aspects of that, but we are not Jerusalem. We are not Israel. Uh, we, as the church, are called to follow Jesus. And so uh, with our political leaders, there, there should be no expectation that they will follow God. But that doesn't mean that God is not going to use them to affect his purpose, that he is not going to use them to build his kingdom. But of course, the biggest way that we hear the murmur of God is in what this encounter points toward, because both Moses and Elijah show up again on another mountain. And you had an allusion to that in the call to confession, Matthew account, but there's the Luke account and there's a Mark account, all the Mount of Transfiguration, and there, Moses and Elijah, uh, these two preeminent covenant maker, covenant keeper figures of the Old Testament meet and speak with the preeminent covenant keeper covenant mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ, on a mountain. And they speak specifically, Luke tells us, of his departure, of his exodus, that word literally is. Jesus has told us that he is the way. And what we see is the exodus, the way forward, is through him. And it's not a shout. It's not uh, it's not the fire falling from heaven. It's not the Messiah coming to drive out the Romans that the Israelites thought it was, but it was the whisper of a broken down man from Nazarene who had no form or comeliness that we should admire him. It was the whisper of one who, like a sheep, was led to the slaughter. It was the whisper of injustice uh, on a hill outside of Jerusalem, not in a place of prominence, in the darkness of heaven. It was in that low whisper that God murmured redemption for all of creation. It was the ultimate zag. When we expected this, when we expected fire from heaven, God came in the weakness of human flesh, in the injustice of a Roman moment, in order to bring peace and salvation, redemption to all who would believe in that. And it was then the triumph, the shout of Easter that we celebrate every Sunday 
that we rise up and we say yes and amen to Jesus, the greater Elijah, the greater Moses, the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. And we realize that God's plan is so much better than our plan, that our limitations are absolutely no problem for God. We see the sweetness of his continued pursuit as he comes to us and offers us the ultimate redemption. So where do we go from here? Well, one is this, and this is my fourth point, the prescription. We need to recognize, uh, have a holistic view of self. Some of this is, is what we would say, uh, we might term having a self-awareness. Are, are you aware of your own limitations in ways that they may be leading you astray? I've referenced several times politics. This chapter sort of invites it as we see God working through people like Hatzael and Jehu. Um, we, we, we become so discombobulated on the political sphere, and I, and I really see that. You know, coronavirus invites it. We don't agree with these policies or that policies, but we are really talking more about our own limitations than we are talking about God and what he might be doing. And so what this text invites us to is a holistic view of self that is aware of, of where we fall short, of where we fall short in, in what we can see long term, aware of where we fall short in our physical abilities uh, that allows others to step in and, and to touch us and to feel us. Got to be careful with that touch thing, but uh, uh, to touch us and to feed us and uh, to come alongside of us that allows God to come in and to say, keep on keeping on. I mean, he so significantly here is he reconnects Elijah to his vocational call. And, and for us, that primarily is to be a follower of Jesus. And, and wherever we've gotten lost, whether it's in our fears, in our anxieties, in our politics, or whatever this is, God is bringing us back and says, I am good, I am trustworthy, follow me, keep your eyes on me, and I will lead you forward. And remember, I will lead you forward in a way that you will never expect. Elijah isn't even going to die. He's the one that asks God to take his life. And he ultimately gets taken up without even dying. Two people, uh, Enoch and Elijah, who that is true of. Do we trust God? The second thing is, do we have that holistic view of God that can see him acting not only in the fire, not only in the earthquake, not only in the whirlwind? And we want those things, and sometimes he does. He works on the miraculous. We pray for it, and we're healed. Uh, in, uh, we preach, and, and people repent. Uh, we see those types of things, and, and we know that God works miraculously, spectacularly, but... Can we see it? Are we willing to see it even when we can't see it? In the still small voice, in the murmur, uh, in the brokenness of um, injustice, 
in society. And maybe that is working in a particular way. Can we see it in the brokenness uh, of our own life? Because ultimately, the cross helps us to see that God's weakness, God's weakness is so much stronger than our strength. Brothers and sisters, we're all on the path. And I know because I am a man just like you, maybe a human. Um, I know that we find ourselves zagging when we expected to zig. This passage, Elijah's journey, God's meeting him is meant to give us the ultimate confidence that God's ways are beyond our ways. Praise be to him and grace and peace be to you. Will you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your promises that are yes and amen in Jesus, the sweetness of your gospel. Lord, I pray that you would encourage this people today. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a great day. Maybe you'll get out, find a trail. Maybe you'll enjoy another cup of coffee uh, or tea, whatever it might be, and just allow the Lord's presence uh, to overcome you that you may know that he is good. Amen? Amen. Goodbye.